Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This is Matt Tullis. This week on Gangry the Podcast, I talk with Susan Dominus. Dominus is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. She's written about everything from higher education to organizational psychology. She also writes celebrity profiles. The most recent focused on Daniel Radcliffe of Harry Potter fame. The other was about Stephen King and his family of writers. Both were wonderfully written and insightful. Those are the stories we'll talk about today. As usual, we've linked to several of Dominus's stories on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Susan, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk about the Daniel Radcliffe piece uh, to start things off. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that how that story came about? It's funny when people ask that question because sometimes you don't really know. All I know is my editor called me one day and said um, another writer was <clears throat> planning on, on doing his profile of him. He's got a film coming out in the fall, and unfortunately she can't do it, and we wondered if he would be interested. So I don't know what the backstory was about how that reporter and uh, Daniel's people worked it out, um, or who approached, who approached whom. Um, but um, I was lucky enough to, you know, be considered to do it, uh, someone who could do it, and I had a really good time doing it. Did you have a lot of time prepare, uh, to prepare for that? Because sometimes, I mean, I've been pulled on in stories um, kind of at the last minute before, and then I feel scrambled, like I'm not able to prepare like I normally would. Did you have that uh, issue at all? I actually had a couple of weeks, so that's plenty of time. Well, it's actually not that much time when you maybe I had more than that. Um, I had a lot of Harry Potter movies to watch, though, you know, and those are long and um, for me like fairly boring. And so um, I also downloaded tons. I had enough time to download a bunch of uh, clips about him, and um, and even when I was traveling with him and his kind of entourage, such as it is, I was going back to the hotel room every night and and. Um, doing research and, and search, you know, Nexus searches, Google searches, uh, looking at things on YouTube. And also sometimes when you're in the middle of reporting a story, obviously, you know, the source or somebody else mentions something that you then follow up on before you, for the next day, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Did you, um, it, it seemed like, at least from reading the story, that you spent a good deal of time with him. Um, I know sometimes that's not always the case. Uh, how much time did you spend with him and and what was that time like, at least as far as being a reporter goes? Well, I think it's funny because um, I had at least I had three separate <clears throat> one hour or so long interviews with him, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then I was sort of around on and off for a week, most intensely during these two days in Venice when he was at this film festival, the Venice Film Festival. But... I didn't have tons of kind of intimate time with him, you know. Um, you know, we were, it was not like we flew from London to Venice together or I was in the car with him everywhere he went. There were a couple of rare instances when I was sort of with him in the bubble as he was looking out at the craziness that is his public um, fan base, you know. Um, but a lot of the time I was just kind of hanging around. I don't know if that makes 
sense or not. But I was there's a lot of observing without necessarily having kind of intimate access. He seemed like a pretty open guy. He's incredibly open. Yes. I think he is really, really open. Um, he's very reflective and um, thoughtful, but also really aware of, um, you know, I think there's a couple of, there's, you know, there's the many layers of, of anybody, but particularly somebody who is used to dealing with the press and is, has experimented with how open to be or how open not to be. And I, you know, there's a lot of layers there. So there's a kind of layer that is very open that he gives every reporter, you know, uh, including the dozens who interviewed him, if not hundreds, while we were in Venice. And I felt, but I felt like I got to know him the best when we weren't having a formal interview, when he was just making conversation and saying things that, um, I think he's a really honest person in general, and I think he would just sometimes say something off the cuff um, that was very revealing. Were you... um I, and I think I read it this way. You were there when he was um, getting ready to film the one scene out of his TV show, um, the the show that he, yeah. he stars in with John Hamm, mm-hmm. and he put on the clown suit. Or, um, or were you there watching that happen? Because that was a really, um, I, I think, a real humanizing scene where it shows him talking to the audio guy and then doing the the ballet move in the clown suit. Can you talk? Yes. You, were you there for I that? Yes, I was on set for two days um, uh, for that television show. Uh, uh, I think it's called A Young Doctor's Notebook. And um, I definitely got to see how much he loves his work. And I had on a headset so that I could actually hear the little chit-chat he was making on set with you know his costume uh, person or his uh, sound guy or one of the other actors or actresses. But he, I mean, he is so open. He literally like changed into that clown suit in his dressing room, like in front of me. You know, I mean, he just—he's complete. He's been—he's been so. Um, he, he's changed in so many people over the years that it's really nothing to him. I mean, people were so surprised when he went on stage naked in Equus. But to some degree, I think he's almost dissociated from a sense of ownership of his body. You know, he's just because he's been sort of um, functioning as um, a performer for so long, um, and as a, his body is his instrument. You know. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, did you have any, uh, w- when you went back to write the story, um, did you have any challenges come up as you were trying to kind of tell the story of what it's like to be kind of Daniel Radcliffe? Um, I think that I, I think it was challenging to capture his, um, how funny he is, because the truth is that when I spent the most time with him, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, that's not great for your podcast, during the, I spent the most time with him during the Venice Film Festival, which was an unusually grueling period of his life. And so he was exhausted and he was overwhelmed a little bit. And he wasn't there with his closest friends. And so I think that I saw a side of him that was perhaps more beleaguered than um, represents his typical life, his typical self. You know, if I'd gone to Toronto Film Festival instead, I would have seen him with his girlfriend. I would have seen him with his co-star, Zane uh, uh, Dehain, who's a close friend of his. I might have captured a very different person. Do you uh, do you like writing celebrity profiles? Uh, <clears throat> do I like writing celebrity profi- profiles? I like writing them. I don't love always reporting them. Um because, you know, you can feel like just another person who's trying to get a piece of this 
already overwhelmed person. Um, and sometimes it can even feel a little bit um, antagonistic is too strong a word, but um, if the celebrity uh, has not kind of, some celebrities throw themselves over to it, they enjoy a good conversation with whomever, they don't care. Other people are just incredibly self-conscious about how they're going to be portrayed or why they even have to do it in the first place. And, you know, those can be really uncomfortable uh, experiences. Uh, it, it doesn't seem as though you had that type of experience with, with um, Daniel or Dan as he introduces I himself to fans. Have that. I, I did um, at times, his friends, his friends call him Dan. Yeah. So when I, I spent enough time with him, then now he's, not that we are friends, but I just heard him called Dan so often that that seems like a natural thing to call him. Um, I, um, you know, there are still people around him appropriately enough managing his time. And so <clears throat> there were times when it was uncomfortable because I was worrying I didn't have enough um, one-on-one contact with him to write a piece that captured something about him. And so there were moments when I was trying to kind of negotiate with a publicist whether I could accompany him in a certain moment or not. And those are that's always an uncomfortable question to ask from someone who's trying to protect the basic humanity of a young 24-year-old actor. How did you go about you, – you said you had three sit-downs with him. Is that is that mm-hmm. right? How did you go about mm-hmm. preparing for those and, I don't know, asking questions that he's not getting asked a million times um, every single day? I don't think they did a great job um, asking him questions that other people don't ask every day. I think the best parts of that piece were the um, kind of – spontaneous moments. Um, you know, one thing I do think helps is if you create a timeline, you know, so that you actually understand, that gives you kind of a sense of confidence about asking questions about their lives, um, the life of the person you're interviewing, so that you can try to make connections that maybe they haven't even realized. You know, oh, I saw that, you know, this cast member left right around the same time that I read this other thing happened does that explain why why you were feeling this way at a given time? You know what I mean? Um, and and then um, and this also when you've read tons and tons and tons of other interviews, sometimes you start to get a bigger picture of what might, what might be going on with someone that they themselves haven't articulated. So I think it, it is important just to do all the reading that you can, and that allows you to ask the question that's one question deeper than was asked in the interview that already ran. I think. You said you watched all the movies as well. What were you looking for in those movies? What were you hoping to get from those? Well, I wanted to get a sense of him as an actor. Did I think that he'd grown as an actor? Um, to what can we attribute his incredible success as a as, a, as an icon, um, other than just inhabiting the role? What was it about how he inhabited the role? Um, were there moments when I thought his acting really suffered? And if so, could I ask him about that and why that might have happened? Um, you know, a passive actor, a passive performance, you know, tells you different things about who someone is compared to someone who's incredibly clearly invested and engaged. Or maybe you watch one of the movies and you think about a special effect that you realize it required him to do something incredibly challenging. Um, so how did that go over? Or what was that experience like? Um, were there moments that you can imagine would have been uncomfortable to act out for a child at a certain age? Um, 
that kind of thing. I think even more than watching the movies, though, watching YouTube clips about him off-camera were really helpful, and mm. YouTube videos about the making of Harry Potter, or you know, I watched a YouTube clip of a practical joke that um, the actors played on him when he was, I don't know, 13. They put, like, a fart machine in his sleeping bag at a moment when he was sleeping in a dorm, and all around him were, you know, dozens of other kids also sleeping in sleeping bags. And apparently he had, like, asked if the sleeping bag could be next to a girl he thought was cute. Um, and it wasn't that I felt that, that that gag, you know, this, like, practical joke that one of the actors played on him, it might even have been Stephen Fry. Um, it wasn't that I thought it was a cool joke or, or that it was cool to single him out that way. I just had a sense of him as somebody who was constantly, compared to all the other young people around him, uh, the center of some amount of adult attention. And how, you know, for most people, young people, that could be really uncomfortable and kind of exhausting. I mean, it's not that different from constantly being the teacher's pet in some incredibly massive way. Um, you know, that was sort of interesting for me to observe. Let's kind of move on to the, another kind of celebrity piece that you wrote. And this was about Stephen King's family. Um, which I thought was just a fascinating story. As a writer, I found it fascinating. Um, but I think it's it's fascinating to just about anybody who reads uh, Stephen King novels or Joe Hill novels or any of the other families. Um, can you can you talk about that story? Sure, I'd love to. It was one of the most enjoyable stories I've ever done. Um, because I just there is such a lovely family. They re, you know every person in it. I have. I just felt so affectionate towards and um, I felt so admiring of them. And, um, and of course, they are not really anything like what you would think Stephen King's family would be like. Um, whatever it is that you in your mind would attribute to somebody who writes that kind of um, horror. Although, you know, in a way, I, I do think that Stephen King's writing is characterized by an incredible generosity of spirit and humanity. And um, his wife shares that, and it, it explains, I think, why they have such a terrific family. Had you, um, were you a Stephen King fan uh, before you went and did the story? Had you read a lot of his books? I had not read a lot of his books, and I would say I was a fan the way that kind of, uh, in a very passing way. You know, I definitely could recall reading, um, I think it was uh, Misery on a bus when I was traveling in India and all sorts of crazy things were having, happening on this trip and I was so immersed in the book that I wasn't noticing, you know, that we nearly crashed or we nearly went off the cliff. I was, so I was always very grateful to Stephen King for that, for getting me through that traumatic experience um, without being aware that I was going through a traumatic experience. But I, I didn't make a point of reading his books. And when I went back and reread them, I was really blown away by not just the obvious imaginative feats, but how... Um, as I said, humane a lot of his books are and how they really hold up. I mean, Christine was so ahead of its time in terms, not Christine, sorry, Carrie was so ahead of its time in terms of writing about bullying and the way he inhabits um, the mind of a 17-year-old girl or actually two 17-year-old girls, one who was Carrie and the other who is the uh, sort of popular girl who um, is trying to help her, uh, but is also a flawed individual. I mean, he's, he's really an incredible writer. Did you tell him the story about the, the bus ride? About the bus about ride, reading, did you say? Yeah, reading his book uh, on the bus ride. Did you tell him about that? I don't 
think I did. I kind of wish I had. I don't remember because I think to, in order to do that, I might have had to, to me that part of that story was always part of like that was hey that was the one book of yours that I read, you know, <laughs> and I didn't necessarily want him to know going into the story that I hadn't um, read the entire entire you know Uber because frankly. So many people have read every single thing that he's written that he might have paused to wonder and thought, you know, couldn't they find a writer who'd already read all my books instead of somebody who was, you know, trying to scramble to read so many of them over the course of a month. Do you think that made you maybe better prepared to, to interview him and his family? I personally think reading all, as many of his books as I could and his family's book in very quick succession did prepare me very well for the interview because... I was able to make connections that I never would have been able to make had I read, had I just known, oh, I read that eight, I read that book eight years ago, um, because I had just read um, uh, the Dead Zone um, before reading Owen's book. I literally noticed that there was, you know, I would notice, I, I noticed there were certain turns of phrase that uh, echoed from one book to another. I mean, in other words, it wasn't just that I remember the themes or the feeling. There were actual sentences that would trigger, like, oh, I wonder if they know that they use that same language. Or, or I, would just, I was able to detect the inside jokes that the family writers were making for each other's benefit. Was this a, a story that you pitched or that kind of came your way? Uh, I guess kind of similar question to the, the, the Daniel Radcliffe story. How did, how did it come about? I sort of love this story, actually, because I um, happened to have coffee with an editor. Um, I think it's terrific named Adam Sternberg, and uh, I said, what are you working on? He said, oh, we're trying to find this, find this story about Stephen King. Um, he and his family are going to be getting together, um, and they've given us one day during the first week of July to interview them as a group. And I said, oh, well, the first week of July, I'm going to be at this resort where my family goes every summer, and it's four minutes away from Stephen King's summer home. So I will be there already, and you have to let me do this story. And uh, it took a couple of days, but I finally got confirmation that they were going to let me do it. And so it was so fun because I just, you know, said goodbye to my friends on, you know, by the side of the lake, got my car, drove five minutes, and there I was. Why did you want to write that story so badly? Um, I love writing about writers, and I liked, I also like writing about families. It was like a perfect combination for me about, um, you know, an, an, uh, an opportunity to kind of capture the way that families interact with all their complexity and also just spend time talking to writers who are clearly in love with writing and talking about writing. So those, that was, to me, a really enticing combination. So so what was it like when you were there, when you spent that day with them? Can you talk a little bit about that? It was a little bit nerve-wracking, actually, because um, I think Stephen King has done so many interviews that he really only gives so much time over to them, and I wanted it to feel... Um, not just that we were all sitting around at you know, a conference table or something talking formally. I wanted to have time to capture the family interacting informally. And there was also a photographer who needed you know, time um, and wanted, she obviously would want as much time as she could possibly have to get the best visual. So I was, you know, I'll, even when this, the experience is really pleasurable, it still can be kind of, you know, stressful. Um, and... Uh, Again, it's, you know, you just try to really have your eyes and ears open and try to kind of eavesdrop on the intimate moments that aren't happening for your benefit. You know, not that they know you're there, but they're interacting with each other. And um, I, I almost wish that I, I was so eager to, you know, we did actually sit down around a kitchen table and I did interview them with the three tape recorders going and it was very, you know, I really ran the interview. 
Um, and I kept thinking, I have questions to get to. But when I look back on it, I probably should have been less worried about the formal sit-down interview and let people smooth a little bit more, you know. I mean, you really want to just capture the intimate moments of how people interact when they are not feeling self-conscious. Yeah, there's that one scene um, towards the end of the tabby section of the story where Stephen grabs her hand and they both just close their eyes. Uh, can you talk yeah, about yeah. about that one and how you how you noticed it? Yes, it was incredible. I mean, it was. Um, I think they were. What were we talking about then? I'm trying to remember what the subject matter was. Maybe we were talking about Stephen King's drinking, but I was. Somebody else was talking at the time that they did kind of bend their heads towards each other and close their eyes and grip their hand. And it was one of those moments when I was like, I'm noticing this, and now I'm not paying attention to that other thing that someone is saying, so let's just pray that the three tape recorders are working. And also, I really wanted to stop and say, excuse me, other person who's talking, can you stop talking? Because now I have to ask your parents what's going on right now. But you really can't ask two people who are having a moment that intimate, hey, what's up? (laughs) Why are you guys connecting right now? Um, and I asked them about it later. They didn't really remember. Um, so you just have to kind of try to figure out yourself what you think was happening there. And even the fact that when I asked Stephen King about it, he said, I don't remember why we were doing that. We're just really close and we always have been. You know, that's really telling, too. It was one moment, like millions that they share. Yeah. And you said you had uh, three tape recorders going. I I was going to ask you how you, um, because I could imagine in that situation where you've got a family that's together, Everybody's talking. I was going to ask how you take notes in that um, in that type of situation. How do you make sure you're getting everything? Well, I knew I wasn't going to get a lot of that, that. I was never going to be able to recreate that situation again. So I literally had three tape recorders going and was even still checking every one of them constantly. You know, I was so nervous that I wouldn't capture it. And so then what you focus on um, when you're taking the notes is not what are they saying, but how are they looking? What are they fiddling with? What are they... When are they exchanging glances? What are they wearing? What does the kitchen table look like? You know, um, I, I reserve note-taking for those kinds of um, vivid details. And also, I, I, over the years, I have tried to learn, you just write everything down, every little thing you could possibly observe. Maybe it will be helpful. Maybe it will be useful. Maybe it will be illustrative. Maybe it won't, but you never know until you sit down to write um, what you make of all of those individual details and how they shed light on the bigger story. Why did you structure the story the way you did with a kind of a section for each family member? Um, it was the idea of my editor, Adam Sternberg. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a huge fan. And uh, he just thought it's going to be impossible to weave them all together and have the reader really keep them straight. But even more than that, I think he just imagined it as kind of like a documentary. You know, you can just imagine everybody, you know, the beginning of the movie and everyone's at a party and they're sort of hanging out and schmoozing and then they line up for this photo and flash and then you cut to the, you know, almost, uh, you know, office television style, like one-on-one interviews. Um, And I kept that in mind when I wrote it and it really worked. I thought um, thought it made it a a kind of easily digested, uh, fun read. Yeah, I thought it was structured. I I, I like that because it kind of gave you a little bit of insight into each person and then how they related to the family. I thought it worked well. And it was nerve-wracking, too, because it was my editor's idea, and I had to just execute it, but I didn't know if the top editors would uh, be as sold. And we didn't have a ton of time, and if they hated the structure, I had no idea how I was going to write the piece, and I was going to have to completely start from scratch. So it was um, a big relief to me that it went over as well as it did. 
once I turned it in. How quickly did you have to turn it around? I think I did not have that much time. I think I, I spent, I can't remember how much time they gave me. I know that I spent four and a half incredibly intense, hardworking, long days writing it. I mean, I, I wasted a full day not nailing the lead. I wasted a full day trying a different lead that did not work, but I could not let go of it. I just kept thinking if I work hard enough on this, it will come together. And then finally on day two, I, I spent like another hour on the same bad lead and then just made myself try something else. And then, I, and then as soon as that worked, I was so happy and I liked it much better. Yeah, I, I actually love the lead. I was going to mention that. Um, which uh, can you talk a little bit about it? About what the the lead that actually went ran with the story? Um, yes, I wrote a lead that started with the idea of Stephen King being somebody who um, had a lot of long country uh, drives to make in the eighties, and um, it frustrated him that he couldn't get every book he wanted on tape. But he had all these children, and they could read, and he had a tape recorder, so he enlisted his children to um, read books out loud to him on tape. And I don't think they had much choice in the matter either. And then it became a huge part of the family culture as, you know, if you lost a card game to someone else, they could choose a book that you had to read on tape. And it, to me, captured right away something about um, his parenting and his kids' probable, uh, the closeness of the kids and their devotion, and also how much about books the family was in a very informal, fun way in the sense that I think Stephen King had his kids reading out loud, reading books out loud to him on tape, not particularly because he wanted to educate them or improve their reading habits. He just really wanted those books on tape, and he enlisted his kids to do it. And, you know, that tells you that he, his kids knew how much he loved books from day one, and they were part of um, that experience um, in a really fun way. Yeah, I love that. It also gave me an idea for something to do with my nine-year-old son. So um, totally. And have you have you actually tried it with him? I haven't yet, but I, I'm going to. So <laughs> that's a fun idea. Good luck. Let me know how you persuade yeah, him to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll think... even bring him into the studio and let him do it <laughs> professionally. We'll see how that goes. So that's um, great. Yeah, I, yeah a nation of uh, parents enlisting their children to read out loud for them. That's yeah, awesome. yeah. I think it's gr- I think it's great. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you kind of got to the New York Times? And how you got sure. to where you're doing what you're doing? The very quick answer is that I started out as an editorial assistant at Glamour magazine, and I um, um, bounced around to a different couple of different places as an editor, where I made you know friends and colleagues. And then um, when I was thirty, I decided to become a full time reporter. And because I had good contacts at all of these magazines where I'd been an editor, I was able to start. Um, freelancing for them pretty easily. And then uh, I started freelancing for the New York Times magazine and uh, eventually got a contract there. And my contract there led to a staff job at the paper. Um, I actually wrote a column for the Metro section twice a week for a couple of years um, and then switched back to the magazine um, two years ago. Well, that's great. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for interviewing me. I'm very happy to have been included. We've been talking with Susan Dominus. She's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. We've linked to the stories we've talked about on our website. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. 
Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.